What an intro. How you guys doing? <laughs> no, it's good. It's good to be here. Um, my name is Rob, like, uh, like Dan said, and I am from Zimbabwe. And I have to say this, in all my time of being in the United States and speaking, I've never ever said that it's a pleasure and an honor to be the second Zimbabwean to speak at your church. Like, there are like 15 Zimbabweans in America, and two of them have spoken at OCC. So, so that's hectic. That's like a very, 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 very small sliver of a group that come to Jacksonville Beach. You guys must be thinking, like, there's a billboard in Zimbabwe that says, visit Jack's Beach. All your dreams come true, right? So uh, my wife and I, you know, we were, we were introduced to this amazing church by our friends, the Summerolls, and they said, hey, listen, uh, you, you guys need to go and check this church out. It's our church over there, so when you're on vacation, go to this church. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love Derek and Beth. You've got to meet them. You're going to love them. And so they, they built this up. We're like, okay, we've got to go. And four years ago, on vacation, we strolled in and we drove. I mean, we came from Pennsylvania. We're like, we need to meet these people. And we came here and we're in the, in the, in the back somewhere because we're on vacation. And, um, and they're not here. Derek, Derek and Beth are not here. And um, Antley Fowler is preaching and um, that morning we were like, we needed to hear that message. It spoke to our hearts. And um, you know, when you're on vacation, you're not expecting to have this radical encounter with Jesus. You're on vacation, especially if you work in ministry. You're like, Jesus, I left you in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and so we're here and my wife and I respond to the prayer time because this message is like, it's for me. It's like, no, it's for me. Like, and we're up here and we're on vacation and we are crying. Like, it's not an awe. Like, cry, like, Lord, like, people are speaking into our lives. It's awesome. And um, that's, our, that's our connection here. So you guys are like uh, the vacation church that we, that we come to. And um, we still haven't met Derek and Beth. They're never here. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We met them, we loved them, uh, so that saved some awkwardness with us and the summer rolls. No, we didn't like them. You were wrong. But we loved them, and um, we've built so many relationships with people in the church that we call our friends, that speak into our lives. And, and so it's just awesome for me to stand up here and share what God has been doing in my life and, and the Word of God this morning. And I want to say this before I even take a step further is to say, maybe this morning, you're like my wife and I four years ago. Like, you, you've come with, with no expectations. You've come and you said, hey, listen, I'm just going to link, I'm just going to sit and get through it. And then you walk in, and maybe you came for Derek and Beth, and they're still not here, and you walked in, and there's a Zimbabwean speaking. Like, this is the unexpected nature of Jesus Christ, that as you walk into this room, he will meet you when you least expect him to. That Jesus wants to meet you. That's been my prayer. I said, Lord, I pray someone who's not expecting to encounter you this morning would encounter you in an amazing way. And that, Jesus, you would transform their lives. That you would speak a word into their hearts that would change them. And that's my, my encouragement to you because Jesus is always doing something unexpected. We find this in John chapter 11, which is the passage that I'm going to be speaking from this, this morning. 
And um, if you have your Bibles, it's John chapter 11. I'm just going to read the first six verses, and we're going to go through this, a big chapter. So we're going to go through and, and zone in on some parts in this, in this story about a man named Lazarus. And, um, and if you're wondering why I'm not in the book of James, I actually looked up what passages were due this week, and it was like, be slow to speak, and I, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to let some pros handle that. The people, <laughs> I'm not going to handle that this morning. But really, the Lord led me to this passage of Scripture in John chapter 11. So let's just read that real quick. It says, it says this. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I'm going to stop there, I'm going to pause there, and, I, and I'm going to just point out a few things in this passage. I think even in this series, in the last two weeks, as I've listened to the sermons, uh, as Dan was talking about rejoicing when we're in the trial, and, and some of the misconceptions that we have, and even this morning we're praying about our perspectives in the trial before, before this, this, this service, and, and, I, and, I, and I want us to know this, like, if you hear something being repeated over and over again, because this was certainly not the plan. I didn't know what was happening before. I know my story, so I know what I was going to share. But when I started thinking about it, I was like, there's someone here who needs to hear this three times in a row. That there is something that God is doing when you're going through the trial. That God is at work and has not left you when you're going through the difficulty. And I'll say this right out the gate. The first thing that I want to point out in this passage is that there's this myth that if we come to know Jesus, everything's going to be okay. That if I am going through something difficult, it, do, it means Jesus doesn't love me. And as we open this passage and as we look at this, that is not true. It says in, this, in the first few verses twice that Jesus loved Lazarus. I mean, first and foremost, when Lazarus got sick, the, the message that was sent out, the subject line on the email was, the one you love is sick. Lazarus is in, a, is in, a, is in deep trouble. And yet it says that Jesus loved him. See, the guarantee here is we, we find this in John 16, 33. It says this, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But then it doesn't stop. It says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' promise to us is not that we're not going to have trouble. He says, hey, listen, cheer up, have peace in your heart. Know that I've conquered that trouble. Know that even when you're going through difficulty, it doesn't mean that I don't love you. Anyone ever gone through a difficult time and the first thing that we think is that Jesus doesn't love me? Why are you punishing me? Right When 2020 hits and all that 2020 had to do, I, I don't want to keep looking back, but a, a lot of our instincts were to run toward God is mad at us. 
And our instinct isn't necessarily to see that his love for us is doing something even through the difficulty and through the trial. We find that he loves Lazarus. He loves them. He loves them. And, and we find in the story as well that it, it, it references something that Mary had done in the past and not Lazarus. So it's not saying that Jesus loved Lazarus because he poured perfume, nothing. Jesus just loves Lazarus. At church this morning, I want to say this as loud as I can. If there's one takeaway, it's that Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves you and that he's for you. He is for me. And so when we find in this story that we haven't done anything to earn his love, like he just loves you, that we weren't good enough for him to love us more. He just loves us. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father, I have two daughters, and, and, I, and, I, and they don't have to do anything to earn my love. I just love them. As they are, I just love them. And so as a, as a father, if I can just show love, if you're a parent, if you've ever loved something, you're like, I love this person, doesn't matter. Like, and it, even on their worst day, even when they're misrepresenting me, I love them. I'll tell you this, um, I, I use my daughters a lot in, in my sermons back, back home um, because they're toddlers and they can't complain. So I, I, I use them as sermon illustrations a lot of the time because I, I learn so much about God's love for me because I am a toddler to Him. And so... Um, one, one sermon I preached about my daughter, and, and, and this lady came up to me after the service, like, you're always talking about your daughter. Where is she? And I was like, I would like to meet her. And, and, and right at that moment, it was perfect timing. She was coming from the children's church. So I was like, oh, there she is. And now here's the thing. My daughter was coming up, and as my hand was going to point and say, that's my daughter. It's like almost happened in slow motion. As I'm pointing at her, her little finger is making its way up to her nostril. I'm like, no, no, no. It's like, slow. I can't stop my hand from going down. She can't stop her little finger from going up her nostril. And then bam, as soon as I say, that's her, her finger's in there just digging. And, and I'm like, now I'm pr inside, I'm just praying. I'm like, please don't eat it. Please, please don't eat it. And, and, and she digs in there and she flips it. Church, she flipped the booger, and I, and, and, and I couldn't hide. The, all the other kids were white, and I, so I couldn't even change. I said, no, that, no, it's the blonde kid with the blue eyes. Not, not, not that one. Um, but here, here's the reality, is that oftentimes we think that we are God's perfect children, but the reality is we are the booger flippers. And God chooses to love us. Now, now, don't go writing that in your notes and be like, wow, what did you learn? I'm a booger flipper. But the, God loves you. It's not, it's not anything that you've done. And then we find in this passage as well a misconception of something that when we're going through difficulty is that, is that Jesus loves them. He loves them. And it says, when he heard this, right, it says here that, that so when, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, right? You, you think that the instinct is, is when you love someone and you hear that they're in trouble, your instinct is you drop everything and you run. But Jesus 
loved them and he stayed where he was two more days. I want to say this. Delay is not denial. And in the waiting and in the delay, it's God's perfect timing. It's not like Jesus was miles away. He was two miles away. Two miles from where Lazarus was. Two miles from Bethany. I did the math and I calculated it to to my favorite spot here. And Jesus was at Bold Bean. He was at Bold Bean while Lazarus was dying. Jesus was having a chai latte and a raspberry danish while Lazarus is dying. Lazarus is dying. Send word to Jesus. No, Jesus is right there at Bold Bean, guys. Lazarus is dying. Tylenol's not working. Yeah, he's at Bold Bean. He's coming. Right? It sometimes feels that way, right? When we're like, Lord, I know you're close. I know you can. This trial is it's killing me, literally. But in the delay, God is doing something. He's doing a work. See, Jesus' promise was, the sickness will not end in death. No, this is for the glory of God. And so to trust that even in the midst of what Lazarus was going through, God was still at work. Jesus was still at work, even though he was two miles away. Now, for some of us, we're in that space where you're like, Jesus, you can answer my prayer right now. You know, like when you, when you text someone, our prayers sometimes feel like that, and message is delivered, and you see those three dots just going, and you're like, I know you're there. Just answer the yes or no question. And sometimes it feels like that in our prayer life. Jesus, I can see that you're there. I know you're close. Why aren't you responding? I've had enough of this, this trial. Where are you? But that delay is motivated by love. I want us to hear this, that sometimes Jesus' delay is motivated by his love for us. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It says that he's not slow. It's just our perspective can make it look like he's, he's slow, but he's not slow. He's with, he's with us. It's his perfect timing. It's his perfect timing. I don't know where you're at this morning, and, and, and I used to be a young adult pastor, and I used to say this to young adults all the time, when they're when they, like just in singleness, and you're like, oh, man, I've done, I've done everything right. Uh, you know, I, I've, kept my, I've kept myself in this position to honor God, and, and I've been faithful, and, and I'm still alone, and I'm, every, I'm at a wedding every week. How come the Lord isn't? And I'm like, the Lord is, it, the delay is not denial. He's doing something. He's not slow. He's perfectly on time. And so we find that in the story, Jesus is close. He's close, but he waits. And you know, we, we find even as well in the story is that he says that the sickness will not end in death. And, and you know, when you read the story of Lazarus, uh, you know, spoiler alert, Lazarus dies. So Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death, but Lazarus died. Like, wait, wait a minute. 
This sickness, imagine being a disciple. Sometimes we mock the disciples. We're like, oh, they were so stupid. We say all of that. But guys, just, just think for a second. You heard Jesus say, the sickness will not end in death. And then you got the memo that Lazarus died. The disciples must have been bumping each other and says, hey, listen, man, that perfect record is gone. I know, G- I know he's God and all, but you got one wrong here because Lazarus is not breathing. But here's the thing, in Zimbabwe we sing this song, you are Alpha and Omega, it comes from Revelation, and he is the beginning and the end, and it's not over until Jesus says it's over. The end is defined and determined by Jesus, not by circumstance, not by time, he's outside of time. He says this is not the end, even if Lazarus dies, it's not the end. I want to encourage us this this morning because this story has all the hallmarks of the things that we go through, that it feels final, it feels like it's over, and yet Jesus hasn't said it's over. He's still on his way, and he gets the final say. And so to us, death may seem an insurmountable mountain, a foe that we could never defeat, but this is why we, we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. That is the foundation of our, of our faith. Jesus looked death in the face and he defeated it. And this is a foreshadowing of everything that Jesus was to do on the cross, that he was not getting rid of some other things, these, these smaller matters, even though they're big to us, he was actually conquering death itself. But here's the deal. How many times do we we live and the thing that Jesus has said about us and the thing that Jesus has said about our lives, it doesn't match what we're seeing? How many of us have been in a place where it's like, I know what God has said, I know what what God has shown me, I know what people have prayed over me, but but, but the reality of what I see doesn't match that truth. I told you that four years ago, my wife and I came here, and and we prayed, and there were words spoken, and and we thought, these people don't even know us, we're on vacation. How could they know this is so accurate? Jesus, this is you, and we thought it was going to happen next week, so we we were like, okay, we're going to go home, and everything that was said is going to happen next week. It's been four years, but we still wait in that space. Lord, we hold on to your word. Because even though the things that we see, they don't match the truth, we still trust you. You know, you you guys will understand this. Um, You know, on Super Bowl Sunday, right? They print print t-shirts with both teams as champions, right? Because they want to put them in the stores the very next day. So if your team wins like the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles won, like you want to wake up in the morning and go right to the store and see that t-shirt printed with your team as champion. But what happens to the other t-shirts? The ones with the wrong information. Well, I'll let you know I'm from Africa. That's where they go. Okay. (laughs) That's where all the fake champions are. They dwell in Africa. So I'll tell you this, that when you go to Africa, you're going to see some Super Bowl t-shirts that are not going to be reflecting the truth. The Buffalo Bills are a dynasty in Africa. Back to back to back to back. They were killing it in the 90s. But that's the wrong information. 
That's not the truth. That's not the true champion. And sometimes when we look at God's word and we look at our lives, sometimes what we see doesn't match. It doesn't match the truth. And so Jesus says, the sickness will not end in death. But there's an encouragement. Jesus is on his way. We find that in Lazarus' story, as we, as we carry on in, jo- in John chapter 11, we find that by verse 17, Jesus lands on the scene. His presence is there. Jesus arrives. He arrives in Bethany, and, and, and Martha meets Jesus. And Martha, she goes up to Jesus, and, and she says, Jesus, if, you, if you'd just been here, if you had just been here, Lazarus would still be alive. And his presence, in Martha's eyes, his presence is what makes the difference. Church, this morning, I want to encourage you. His presence is the promise, right? His presence is the promise. That's what, that's what Dan was saying in week one. It's like, hey, it's not if, it's when we face the trials. The, the promise is that we're not, not going to face difficulty, The promise is that he will be with us. His presence is the promise. In Isaiah 43, my favorite, my favorite, favorite passage, it says this in verse 2 and 3. It says says that he will be with us. He says he will be with us. When we pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you... When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. His promise is not that if. He says, when you pass through those waters, my promise is I will be there. That's his promise. And his presence, his presence is the promise. His presence is what we need to pursue when we're in the trial. His presence is what is, is guaranteeing that we are going to go through it and we're not going through it alone. That he's there with us. He's there with us. His presence is enough. His presence is powerful. I, I, I want to encourage you guys this, this morning that his presence is powerful. Have you ever been in the presence of someone who changes the atmosphere of the room. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've been in the presence of someone that you love or an aunt or an uncle who just, or, or a parent that just fills the room. Their presence changes the atmosphere. Or maybe you've bumped into someone famous and you're like, whoa, they're in the room and their presence just changes the atmosphere, right? I, I, I remember a few years back, um, my, wife was, my wife was pregnant with our second child, and, and, and she needed the bathroom, and so it was, it was an emergency, so we just drove into the Starbucks, because you know, that's where you go when you need the bathroom urgently, and so we went to Starbucks, and she went in, came back to the car, and we're in California, we're in Newport Beach, and we're visiting a friend there, and, and as we were about to pull out from the Starbucks, it was, it was like late, it was 7, 7.30, and, and this black SUV just pulled up next to us. This black SUV pulled up next to us, and my friend said, I know that that's someone's, someone famous. And you know, when you're visiting California, that's why you're there, to see famous people. <laughs> so we're like, who could this be? And so we wait. 
watching this black SUV like tourists in the Serengeti waiting for a lion to pounce on an Impala. We're there waiting and the door opens and out steps five-time NBA champion Kobe Bryant. And we're like, it's Kobe! And my wife and I were like, it's Kobe! My daughter's in the back, she's like, she's like, where's Kobe? We're like, it's Kobe! It's Kobe Bryant! We need to get in the Starbucks! So we planned this whole thing. We're like, okay, I'm gonna get in there. I'm gonna take, hey, I told my wife, Lisa, you stay in the car. I'm gonna take my daughter, and there's a good look. My friend, we're gonna go in there. And so we went in Starbucks. We ordered the, the cheapest drink, it was like seven bucks. We ordered that. <laughs> And, and we're in there waiting for Kobe because we know he wants to come into the Starbucks. There's no one there, just us. And as the door opens, it's us and Kobe Bryant. He walks in and there's like an aura. It's like, ah. And we're like, it's Kobe. And this is my chance to say, what's up to Kobe Bryant? And I, and I choke. <laughs> nothing comes out. I look at him, nothing comes out. And I'm like, I've messed up meeting Kobe Bryant. The one thing I had to do was to say, hi, Kobe, I need a picture. And my Instagram was going to blow up. But here I am. And I choked. And as I think the moment's gone, my daughter shouts at the top of her voice. Because she's seen the commotion in the, in the car. She's like, my parents are like teenagers at a Justin Bieber concert. She's like, what? Who is Kobe? She just says, who is Kobe in the Starbucks? It echoes through every wall. And Kobe looks at us. And and, and I, I'm like, okay. And I, and I go up and I say, hey, Mr. Bryant, she's obviously a great big fan of yours. Can we have a picture? And, and, and I don't know if you guys have the picture. We took a picture with Kobe. And, and I, I made sure I held my daughter to the side because if you look at the next slide, I can crop her out. <laughs> this is my moment, not yours. It's my moment. And after, after that, as God always does, I'm having a quiet time the next day. My Instagram, my friends in Africa are like, Robert, you've made it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've made it. I just, just hang out with Kobe. But, um, but the next day, I'm, having, I'm just reading the Bible. And, and the Lord is like, did you see what you did to try and get into Kobe's presence? You changed your plans. You bought a drink you didn't want to drink. You positioned yourself to be in the presence of Kobe Bryant. But Rob, how do you position yourself? How do you inconvenience yourself? How do you shift the things around your life to be in my presence? And the truth is, I don't want to take his presence for granted. In the midst of the trial, his presence is the promise. His presence is what counts. In the midst of the trial, his presence is what will get us through. In the midst of the trial, his presence changes our perspective. You know, I'm trying to think, as I think of even just my story and what God's done, I'm trying to think like, and being reminded that all through, all through everything God's done in my life, it has always come down to Lord, do I trust you? Lord, do I realize and recognize that I need you even when, I, even when everything is great? I need your presence in my life. 
You know, my wife and I, we came to the United States seven years ago. And, um, and seven years ago, I was dying. I was 30, and um, I'd never been sick in my, my whole entire life. And, 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 and one day, I just, I just woke up, and I was sick. And, um, and I started losing weight rapidly. And eventually, I, I collapsed on, on, on our bathroom floor in Zimbabwe. And my wife, we had just newlyweds. And, and I collapsed, and, and my wife was like, I need to take you to the ER. And she took me to the ER. Now, I've never been sick in my life. The doctor does these blood tests and comes back, and, and, and he says to me, I'd, I'd never had a blood test. And, and the doctor comes back into that room and says, Rod, Rob, you're an end-stage kidney failure. You are dying. We're going to have to put you in the high-dependency unit because you're dying. And in that moment, I, I try and describe I, I, what my world looked like. I, I was serving God. I'd just been married. We found out that we were pregnant. I was so excited. Everything looked great on the horizon. And, and in the moment, just one, one, one sentence from a doctor changed my entire life. You are dying. You are dying. And so those words, you are dying, are words that you do not want to hear in a hospital in Zimbabwe. At the time, the second poorest country in the, in, in the world, it, it, was, it, it was like a death sentence. I, there's no way out of this. And as I was lying in that high dependency unit, I remember thinking to myself, Lord, I think you have the wrong guy. Like, Lord, I'm on your team. And I'll tell you, all the bad theology that I had, could muster up in my heart had taught me that as long as I was on God's team, as long as I was serving him, as long as I was in the mix, as long as I had dedicated my life to, to serving him, nothing would go wrong. But here I was dying of end-stage kidney failure. I felt abandoned. The lies that the enemy started to whisper in that moment were, God does not love you. God is punishing you. And I was in that space, and that, is, and that is the moment where the reality of Isaiah 43 being my favorite passage of Scripture came, because those words that when you pass through the waters, Rob, the promise is not if, it's, it's, it's when, and I am with you. Rob, I am in this place. I am in this hospital. I am in this place where you're not getting care. I am in this place where you're constantly getting bad news every day because you're getting worse and you're running out of money and you're running out of insurance. I am here. And in that moment, I was reminded that even in, in Lazarus's story, as we find in, in this passage, I was crying out like Mary and Martha and saying, Lord, where are you? And so as I'm in this bed and, and, and dying in Zimbabwe, I get a phone call from a pastor in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. This guy's name is Bob, and he called me. They had just come from a missions trip two months before, and so they were with us, and he heard I was sick, and so he said, Rob, I'm praying for you. 
I mean, you, you know, it's, it's comforting, but it's not. You know, thoughts and prayers, you know, like the, the, the praying emoji underneath your post of you struggling. It's cool and all, but you're like, I need, I need something real. And he said, we're praying for you, Rob. We're praying for you. And so he phoned the next day. Rob, I want you to know, I'm praying for you. The Lord won't let me sleep. I'm praying for you. Then he phoned again the next day. Rob, I want you to know that I can't sleep. The Lord is telling me to lead our church to put legs to our prayers. And, I'm, and we're, we're running out of money at the time. I'm in this hospital and there's no hope. The only hope is this pastor who's calling me from the United States, 7,500 miles away. And then he calls me on a Monday and he said, Rob, you wouldn't believe what happened. I took a step of faith and I put your picture up in the church and I said, let's pray for this guy. You know him. We love him. Let's pray for him. And as I put your picture up, the new president of Doylestown Hospital was looking for a church and he had just walked into that church that morning and he looks at my picture and he said, if you can bring him here, I will take care of him. And so he's like, Rob, isn't that good? And for, for a second in that moment, I'm like, you know, Jesus, you're there. You know, when the answer starts to come, you go, I never doubted you, Jesus. You know, I always knew you were going to come through. And so we're thinking this is going to happen tomorrow. We're going to the States and everything's going to be okay. But it takes a little bit longer. But other, eventually it, the door opens and, and, and everything is paid for, and we fly to the United States, and I go straight from JFK to the hospital. And they run these tests. And I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe I'd watched way too many episodes of House. I thought some doctor was going to stroll in with a cane and say, hey, man, you're allergic to carrots. Be on your way. American medical dramas, just setting expectations. So I... But that's not what happened. They came in and they said, Rob, we've run every test. You are dying. And, and you're going to need a kidney transplant. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, Lord, why did you bring us all this way just to leave us hanging? Lord, why would you bring us all this way just for something impossible to come up? And so that pastor, he says, Rob, we're not going to give up. He's like, it's another, it's another test, it's another challenge. We're going we're gonna to approach this challenge. I'm like, hey, man, I, I don't know if you know, but I need an organ. And he's like, we're going to keep on going. And so he starts phoning up doctors, and he's very, 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 very smart. He's, he looks up doctors who have African-sounding last names, and he's like, hey, do you have a brother called Rob Chifokoyo? He needs, he needs your help. And everyone is, 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 everyone is rejecting him. Everyone's rejecting him. And finally, a hospital in Camden, New Jersey, they call back and they say, we'll do the surgery. We will do the transplant at the discounted price of $250,000. We will do it. And as I heard this news, he was like, Rob, we found a hospital. I'm like, yay, it's going to cost a quarter of a million dollars. Ah. <laughs> and so he says, we're just going to, by faith, stand up in the church and say, hey, Rob needs a quarter of a million dollars. 
And so we stood up in front of the church one Sunday, and we said, there's no way to ask this, guys, except to say Rob needs a quarter of a million dollars. And so the church responded. That Monday, I got a phone call while I was on the dialysis machine, and the pastor says, Rob, you wouldn't believe it. And I thought we were going to raise $10,000, and they thought they were going to raise like $100,000 in three months. And he said, Rob, yesterday in our service, we raised $190,000. Rob, you're going to have this transplant. And I'm like, that's awesome. I need an organ. (laughs) And so they asked the church, can you imagine this happening at a church? (laughs) Let's run it back. Let's go back up and say, hey, guys, Rob needs an organ. <laughs> Thanks for the 250K. <laughs> but we're back. <laughs> uh, and so a young guy who had been on the missions trip to Zimbabwe, 23 years old, he came on the missions trip and um, he came up to me while we were in Zimbabwe before I was sick and he said, I feel like the Lord has sent me to heal someone on this trip. Now, I wasn't sick, so I just went, hey, have you healed someone in Doylestown, Pennsylvania? No, that's not happening here. So I was like, if God hasn't used you in America, he's not using you here. Chill out. So anyway, I prayed for him sarcastically. I think inside my heart, I even prayed for him, Lord, whatever you have your way, please, Lord, help him understand that you're not going to... I didn't know, but he got tested. I found out he was a match, and he called me, said, Rob, I have something to tell you. I am a match, and I am going to give you my kidney. I mean, I mean, I was blown away. What do you say when someone says, I'm going to give you an organ? You know, when people give you a donut, you say, thank you. What do you say <laughs> when people say, I'm going to give you an organ to save your life? And on August 26th, 2014, Michael Wattel and I went into separate theaters to get operated on, and Michael gave me his kidney that day. And that is how I am standing in front of you this morning. Someone laid their life and said, I am willing to die. And they asked him in that theater, he told me this years later, he said, right at the last minute before the anesthesiologist, I think that's the name, came into the room. He said, they said, Michael, we're giving you one more chance. Do you still want to go through with this, knowing all the risks that you're about to take? Are you still willing to go through this? And it doesn't matter. We'll tell Rob that there was a problem with you and and it it wasn't going to work out. And he said, yes, I'm willing to go through this. I'm still willing. And in that story, I point out this. Throughout that journey, throughout everything that happened in that, God was at work. He was doing something. He was moving. Through the highs and lows, he was always present. And I know I'm standing up here, and it worked out. right? I'm standing up here with a new kidney, and, and it worked out. 
And so you're like, Rob, it's, it's easy to declare the goodness of God when he comes through. But what about me? I'm still in the pit. I'm still in the darkness. I'm still going through it. But there was a time, I tell you, when I was sick, where I came to a place where I was like, Lord, what is the worst that could happen to me? If I am healed, I will proclaim your name forever. I will always give you glory in my story. I will always talk about your faithfulness and your goodness. But if it doesn't work out, Lord, I will still praise you. I will still say you are God. I will still say you are the one because, Lord, I will be in your presence. It's either I say you are God and you are good and I'm healed or I'm in heaven where Chick-fil-A is open on a Sunday. I'm good. It's a win-win if you love Jesus. In the midst of the trial, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say our God will deliver us. They have confidence, and we must say that. Our God will deliver us. God will deliver us. God will come through. But they also say, but even if he doesn't, but even if he doesn't, he is still God. He is still good. You see, in Lazarus' story, and, I, and, I, and there are two things in the story. I know I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time, but here's the thing. I, I want you to understand this. At the end of Lazarus' story, there are two things that, that happen. Jesus goes to the tomb. He says, take me to the tomb. And as they take him to the tomb, he asks them to remove two things. One before Lazarus is alive and one after Lazarus comes back to life. Before Lazarus is alive, he says, roll away the stone. Now, if you know Jesus, you know that he's well capable of rolling stones by himself. But he says, roll away the stones. The people who were present had to remove the obstacle that stood in between what Jesus was calling out and that thing that was dead. And I don't know what is dead in your life. I don't know if it's your marriage. I don't know if it's a relationship with your kids. I don't know if it's within yourself that there are things that have died, dreams that have died, things that God has called forth. Maybe it is your health that's failing. Maybe it's things that you know that these things are dying or are dead and they're in the tomb and they're buried. And Jesus this morning is saying, remove that obstacle. Maybe the obstacle is unforgiveness. Maybe the obstacle is your pride. Maybe the obstacle is sin that you are holding on to and refusing to let go. Remove the obstacle so that Jesus can say, Lazarus, come out to the things that are dead that need to come back to life. And the second thing Jesus asks is that as Lazarus comes out of that tomb, the Bible says he was just all wrapped up like a mummy and Lazarus is walking out. I don't even know how there was still a crowd at that tomb when this guy hopped out the grave, but he hopped out the grave looking like a mummy and Jesus says, and I love this, I love this, I don't want to miss this, Martha, who's probably an Enneagram one, says, but Jesus, he's going to stink. Imagine that. She goes, well, hold, hold up, Jesus. Lazarus stinks. He's coming back to life. And she's concerned about the stench. Hey, when things come back to life, they're going to stink. Hey, some of us in this room, we're alive. 
But we stink. We still have, we're still reeking of death because we're just starting to walk this out. Maybe there's some things that are still lingering. Maybe there's, and I'll tell you, I stink sometimes. But the awesome thing is that Jesus is not afraid of this stench. The awesome thing is that Jesus says, he's coming out anyway, Martha. Stinky and all, we'll deal with the mess. And the reality is, this is a church where I know for sure, as I've heard story after story, that you can come here with any kind of odor. We celebrate that you're alive. And so he comes out and Jesus says, remove, remove the grave clothes. Remove the grave clothes. See, when we're alive, Jesus wants us to remove those clothes that represent death and put on the new self, put on love, put on his righteousness. We no longer have to walk with the clothes that represent our old life, our dead life. We are now new creations in Christ. Remove the grave clothes. And he says, remove them and let them go. Whom the Son sets free, church, is free indeed. Are you free in Christ? Are you bound by the things that were binding you in the grave? Remove those and walk in freedom this morning. Let's stand. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing this morning in our lives. I pray, Lord, that for each and every person in here, Lord, that your truth this morning will settle in our hearts. And that, Lord, that we would encounter you completely this morning. Meet us where we're at. Call those things back to life, Lord those things back to life that we even least expect to come back, Lord. Call them back to life.